1: Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash.
2: Welcome to episode 97, the Kirill Kaprizov. Ah, who are you kidding? The Connor McDavid edition of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger along with uh, Frank Saravalli. And no no offense to, uh, to Wild Bill because I love Kaprizov as hell of a player, but uh, McDavid is pretty good, although. Uh, He's not feeling too good right now, Frank. I asked him if that was maybe the most frustrating regular season. Obviously, playoffs is different. The most frustrating, disappointing regular season loss of his career. And he's like, yeah, it's got to be right up there. And he really didn't have anything else to say. The Oilers, I've covered the Oilers now for over 20 years. And obviously, they've had some really bad teams. But when they were bad, you didn't really expect them to win. You're up three to one against the 30th place Ottawa Senators at home. You've given up 13 shots in 40 minutes. You're com- complete control of the game. And you give up five goals in the third period, and you lose six to uh to four. And uh, now you're two, ten, and two in your last 12. And you basically just it's like they kicked the ball against the wall, Frank, and just nutted themselves on the rebound last night. The ricochet off the wall. <laughs>
3: I don't even know how to, how to respond to that. Uh, um, it's so on brand, like it really, it's the most Euler thing going based on the way the last two plus decades have played out. I mean, how else do you describe a team that on December 1st was leading the national hockey league in points percentage and is now Fifth place in the Pacific division in points percentage. Yeah. In the division, not the conference, the division.
2: Yeah, it has not been a good run, Frank. It you, now you can start. Hey, they need better goaltending. Whoever plays goal, they need better goaltending. There's goal so
3: tennis. many layers to this. Yes.
2: They're all in it together. They yeah, really they are. are. Even and, their best and, players haven't been as like uh, McDavid and Dry it'll have a high standard, but they're below it right now. They're they're not even playing up to their capabilities. It is a complete team effort. And it's one where either they look within or like the patience of Ken Holland has to be wearing thin.
3: That's actually the cardinal sin of Saturday's loss is that the second, third and fourth line scored. Mm -hmm. They had a lead going into the third period. McDavid and Dreisaitl were held off the score sheet and you still lost.
2: Yeah. Well, Dry Settle had an assist on Cassian's first goal of the game, but yeah, you're right. being, five on
3: five. There we always ask about depth scoring and and where is that for the Oilers. It shows up on a night when you're you're not getting it from McDavid, really, or Dry settle and you still can't capitalize and win
2: against the 30th place like it's not like they lost to colorado or carolina or florida they lost i know offense senators i know they're seven three and one of their last 10 games but they're still in 30th place and they look like they didn't have a pulse in the first 40 minutes it was a pretty easy game for Stuart skinner and then you know you'd like a save on one of those goals at least yeah. from your goaltender but and you know, skinner you- wasn't great but that's that wasn't no. that wasn't really no. the issue for me on on Saturday night. No. Bad reads in the neutral zone. You, you, the, the orders the orders did what they've done for the last six weeks. They gift goals and glorious chances to the opposition. And then their penalty kill, they take a penalty early, they give up a goal. They take a penalty late, they give up a goal. Like, there, there is every element of this team right now. And this is why, Frank, when I was asked early in December about, you know, Dave Tippett and Edmonton, I said, well, talk to me in January, and if they're still in a funk, well, then you have to seriously consider it. And, well, here they are. They're in a funk. And, and this is the way I look at this situation. I'm not a big believer in, you know, it's easy to yell, fire the coach, fire the coach, right? Um, it's an easy thing to do. And I get why fans do it. They're frustrated, right? But firing the coach, you have to look at all the layers. Okay. So if you fire him, who are you going to bring in? Um, there's talk of, well, promote Glenn Galton. Well, first of all, you couldn't even do that right now because Glenn Galton's actually still in, in quarantine, isolation. So he's not even out yet. So that's number one. Number two, um, you could promote Jay Woodcroft from Bakersfield. But if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, then you should bring Dave Manson with him. And he'll run the defense. I don't think you would just fire the head coach if that's what you're doing, because to promote no, I, Croft, if 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 uh, Dave Tippett is going, I think Jim
3: Playfair is going with him. Yeah, yeah, and that was, I, I think that's actually been one of the big stories for the season. It has been the sort of lack of trust or lack of development that's come on the back end for the Oilers. It, it feels like anytime there's a mistake made. The young guys are paying the price. And more to the point, there's been some odd pairings. Like Keith and CeCe is, is very strange to me.
2: Well, they played really well early on. They, they were And they had all the defensive zone starts. See, I don't know if I would say the young guys are getting the brunt of it. Evan Bouchard has played a ton of minutes. For, for the Edmonton orders. Now him and Barry have swapped right uh, from the first and third pair every now and then, but Evan Bouchard's minutes, I, I don't know, you know, the last few games, maybe sure, but it, it ebbs and flows. Some games he'll play less. Mm-hmm. He also had just come out of COVID. He had one day of skating. So I don't know if maybe, you know, that was a part of it, but Evan Bouchard's overall minutes to me, aren't much of a of an issue. When Marcus Niemelainen got recalled, he actually played quite a bit. Like he was playing 15 minutes a night in your third pair and it was actually quite solid. At least he added dimension. My problem with the orders is on the back end, I don't know what their dimension is. Like what, what are they? And they've suddenly, mm. they, Edmonton, like in front of the net. And so, Part of it, like you got to box guys out, number one, right? Then you got to have the awareness and spatial awareness to take the guy because the Edmonton orders and, and all the numbers said Sport Logic back it up. The Edmonton orders are one of the worst teams in the NHL in front of their net at defending.
3: Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm at a loss for words because there's like I, I was just thinking, you know, in front of the net defending, and then we can talk about the goaltending and like actually what I've been replaying to myself most of the day has been how is it that in a summer where there were so many goalies available like so many top end goalies available that have ended up being difference makers how did they not do any better than what they ended up starting the season with
2: Yeah, that's fair. Like Mike Smith's injuries have definitely been a major factor. Now, some would say, hey, it was 39-year-old. You'd expect that. Well, I don't know. We can go across the board. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think that's ever fair. No, I don't think so either because there's lots of guys older now who play long, but the injury to Mike Smith has definitely hurt them.
3: It has definitely hurt them. I think the issue is, and I can understand the logic of going with Koskinen for one more year just to get through it so you don't have dead cap money for two years. I can get that. Um, but the issue is that Koskinen was just pressed into service again in a role that he shouldn't be in because Smith faltered. And it's almost like the way that they arrived at Smith is really what was so problematic. Like going back to the summer, we all heard the rumors about, you know, I guess it would be two summers ago about Jacob Markstrom. And then after that, uh, last summer it would have been Kemper, uh, that I think there was some conversation there. You know, it's, I I think that they had at least inquired, I don't know if Pittsburgh was open to the idea. I think they had at least inquired about Tristan Jarry. Like there have been so many guys that they've talked to that didn't end up working out. And then they finally come back to Smith. And then it's the second year of Smith. That's going to end up killing you.
2: Yeah, it's true. Although I, you know, on, on the weird, uh, the way they, uh, made his, if he actually retires because he was making more than, uh, uh his, his cap hit, he actually uh, they can get out of that one. If he, re- if he retires, I have no idea if he would, the Kemper one really, he,
3: re, even group, though, even though it's a 35 and over contract. Yeah. Well, because, I how think you structure because it's it, a multi-year 35 and over contract, yeah,
2: he can, how you structure it, though. Puckpedia explained it, um, because of the, uh, his cap hit and they're paying him more, but the, why uh, would he retire though and leave the money? Like, no yeah, one does well, that. They just that's, go on well, you're IR. Right. It's fair. Yeah. May, maybe just go on the IR. That's fair. The, the whole Grubauer one, because I, I heard they were quite close to a trade with Darcy Kemper. And mm-hmm. then, of course, Kemper uh, went in, uh, or sorry, uh, Grubauer. Uh, went and signed in Seattle, which some people weren't expecting. And I'm sure he might be having remorse considering, you know, he took a half a mil more uh, to go to a team that he went from a Stanley cup contender to a a draft lottery contender, which was, you know, I
3: think it was Samarukov and a first was what they were talking about for Darcy Kemper.
2: Yeah, and trust me, right now they would have been, and I know Kemper got off to a little bit of a slow start in Colorado, but he's back to playing normal right now. No surprise that ABS are absolutely rolling everybody. But yeah, you know, goaltending. I look at Edmonton. I still believe that Edmonton topped my my concern is this, Frank. I don't know. Like Edmonton has some high end skill guys, obviously, but when I watch the orders, I find that they are not. Um, well, right now, anyway, they're 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 very. They're very soft in the sense that they give up two easy goals to the opposition. Right now, when anything bad goes against them, they, they can't seem to bounce back from it. And I just, they they don't play passive and, or so they play too passive. And, and I think Dave Tippett, obviously he's coaching a little bit right now, like a coach who understands he's got to win because, you know, you're right. Brendan Perlini scores again. Brendan Perlini's got five points in six games and he's still only playing five, six minutes a night. Like at some point. You Like, Leon Dreisaitl, obviously, he's a hard trophy winner. He's a great player. But if he's not having a great night, you can't just keep force-feeding him 23 minutes of ice time when he's turning the puck over. To me, you'd be like, hey, let's go, uh, you know, you guys can sit out a shift. And not that he would be considered sitting a shift. It just means that we wouldn't play guys five minutes on our fourth line when they scored a goal. So how do they get out of this? Like, I, I'm just looking and I say, at some point,
3: things have to turn around. Like, they can't possibly be this bad.
2: I think there's got to be there's either a trade or there's a coaching change at this point. You can't. It's, it's not just natural. You're saying that they I, can just... I would. I'd be quite surprised, Frank. Like Florida's their next game. Did you see Florida obliterate Dallas and Columbus like for fun <laughs> on Friday and Saturday night? And Columbus is a hard team. So yeah, and you bring that team to town right now, and the orders are two and ten. And the other thing is they can't score first. Frank, this like this stat every game it gets worse. Four times in twenty six games they've scored first. Four. It's hard to do. It's. I
3: I just look at other stats though, like the power play from the start of the season to December first. It was thirty seven percent.
2: Yeah, under eighteen now. It's
3: eighteen point four since December first. Eighteen point four, yeah. So they're 22nd in the league since December 1st. It's the same personnel. Yeah. Did they become complacent? Did they be, did their power play movement get stale? You know, is it all, it's, it's gotta be all mental.
2: It's totally mental. I, they do miss Nugent Hopkins. I think he was a, he was a he was a really good, important third piece. You know, he has a skill set of distributing the puck, so they do miss him a bit. But your power play shouldn't be that, fall off that much because of one player when he's not even your top two guys.
3: They can't be this bad. That's all I'm saying.
2: Yeah. Well, you wonder how much of it is mental right now, for sure. And that's why Ken Holland might have no choice. Like, how much longer can you wait? Their only advantage they have is that Calgary's in a a free fall themselves. Anaheim has played meh. Like, LA's really rolling, and LA is up to second place now. But Edmonton's got the luxury that they're not out of it. Like, they have to play crazy hockey to get back in the race. But, if like, they can't keep losing games. So, Ken Holland might have no choice but to make a trade or a coaching change to just try to, to, you know, spark something, ignite anything in his team.
3: We're taping on Sunday night. I don't think a coaching change is coming. There was lots of talk about, well, if they lose to the Sens. I always think that talk is so funny because if you're really talking about firing the coach after one more loss, like haven't you already made the decision to do so? What does one game have to do one way or the other in terms of selling you as to what you should do? I don't think the loss to Ottawa, obviously it didn't help, but I don't think that's the plan at the exact moment as we're speaking. Um, And of course this could happen on Monday and, you know, could totally make me look like an absolute moron. I believe the Oilers are gathering for their amateur and pro scouting meetings somewhere warm, and they are discussing and talking about all sorts of different things that could potentially help make this team better and set a path forward for the trade deadline in terms of what they might be thinking and, and how they go about getting this, this thing back on the rails.
2: Well, their whole plan of course, was to have Mike Smith come back and play and he right. comes back he plays two games and he injures his thumb. So now, now he, he's a week to two weeks. Is he ready on Thursday? Mm, maybe. Right. Uh, and then, you know, now that's a freak injury, uh, how he sprained the ligament in his thumb going down on, you know, it's basically bent got his thumb bent back on his blocker hand. Like he's played, he told us however many games he's played. He's never had that ever before. So, you know, you it's a feel a
3: lot injury. better about this Smith injury than the last one. Yeah. The last one they were like, well, we, we really don't know what's going on here. Yeah, This no, one is clear. Different. It's obvious. They know what it is. They know what the timeline is. And it's not, it's not going to
2: be that long. But I'm not sure, Frank. If it's two weeks, can they wait another week? They play four more games. They could lose all four the way they're playing right now, and suddenly a two fourteen and two. So, what are you suggest?
3: Like, what would be your suggestion? That's, I guess, my question is: When you're dealing with a team that's in this spot that has lack of cap space, lack of tradable assets,
2: what do you do? Well, you got a veteran GM. Be creative. I, I would at least make a trade. So and it's not going to be a major deal. I understand it. Bring in a player who's got a little bit of, I, you know, I F you like the Oilers do not, they can't change momentum of the game without a goal. They're not physical at all. Just bring in somebody who's got a semblance of being a dick on the ice. Okay. Who, Like, but, who like I, it,
3: I, I'm not saying the player, but who's your poster child for that?
2: Well, you, you know, you look at and, and the thing is, it's not even it, in today's NHL, Frank, as you know, it's very different. I'm not talking about bringing in Reeves, who's, really, you know, who plays a very good role. I'm not surprised at all that he's in Vegas. They're dominating. He goes to the Rangers. He plays a pretty important part on that team because he makes everybody bigger and uh, and he's chirpy and everything like that. There's they, not very many of them. No, though. like if you ha- like find an, there's got to be an Andrew Shaw somewhere in the NHL. Right in the minor leagues, like just anybody who can go. Because here's the thing, Frank the guys they're playing in the bottom six, it's not like, well, who's he gonna beat out? He doesn't have anybody to beat out. Like, it's not can like it's I that ask hard. That's a dumb question. Yeah. Isn't that what Zach Cassian's supposed to be doing? But one player can do it.
3: No, right? uh, but like one yeah. person is supposed sure. to help he could bring that, more. The- at, he doesn't do that at all. No, no, and that's fair. He, and right? that's, that's really a big reason why he was so valuable. Toughness, you know, that ability to, to make people think the size, like, yes, he can be a capable player when he wants to be, but they're not paying him to score 20 goals a year. They're paying him to do some of that other stuff.
2: The thing about Cassian is I'm not sure he's ever truly been like a major initiator of it. He'll react. and, And if somebody hits, you know, one of his guys with a blatant cheap shot, he'll have no hesitation, right? Like we saw him, you know, he's got suspended early in his career, broke Gagne's jaw. He's done some other things. He went after Kachuk, but he's not necessarily an instigator initiator. And that's what I think Edmonton needs. Like you need guys like Brad Marchand's obviously elite, but Brad Marchand knows how to stir the pot, Frank. Right? Like there's certain guys Edmonton needs a guy who can come in and stir the pot and maybe stir the pot in practice. Like the last time I saw even a semblance of a disagreement in practice from the orders, I'd, I'd have to strain to really remember. Although that. And that that one sequence this week was pretty
3: funny when when Tyson Barry said that McDavid was human. Yeah, <laughs> but
2: that was not
3: what you're talking about.
2: Yes. No. So
3: I, I'm I just would, going through the rosters as we're talking. Like I, there are, there's not many of those guys available.
2: No, probably not. They're, but they're you just, know I don't think there's a, a supply of them in general, let alone available. Like I would look at um, what's it. Well, go try to get Lawson in out of Arizona, at least maybe something like, Right, Lawson, Krause. there's all the talk about it. Like, what are you waiting for? Austin, Watson? Like, I mean, I'm just trying to think of
3: the other guys that sort of have a little bit of an edge to them that don't make a
2: ton of money that, you know, you could really... Well, Matt Martin, now I know they probably... And he's got long-term, but he's only a million-dollar player now. Yeah,
3: that's not happening, I don't think.
2: But... It's too bad Nima Linen got hurt for them because at least he brought a dimension of physicality that that woke people up a bit. You had to pay attention. Edmonton's just, they play too soft. It just bothers me. Like I find they, and you know what? Collectively as a group, they could play harder. He's too valuable, but I
3: think you're talking about like a Marcus Foligno type of guy.
2: Oh, dude. Marcus! I, I think that's your poster boy. I love that guy. He could play my team. and But trust me, Bill Guerin, they're never trading him. Why would no, you? No, no chance. He's such a, yeah. he's way too big a part of what they do. Yeah. Really, I'm telling you, I'm
3: going through all the rosters. Go, you there. know what, Frank? That's- how
2: about this guy? Here's an easy one. Go bring in Curtis Gabriel. He can play seven minutes a night. He'll beat the hell out of anybody on the not other not team. A difference Be- maker. Because right now, well, I'm not asking for it. I said that off the top. I don't expect a difference maker. I'm talking an attitude changer. Bring somebody who's going to bring some life to your team. He's going to cost you nothing. And you're not playing your guy. It's not like your fourth line guys are playing minutes right now, anyway. Right. Uh, yeah, it's easier said than done, I guess, is yeah. the point. Because I just, to me, there's a, right now, there's the, the pilot light in, in Edmonton overall is barely burning. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be a little bit brighter. And you know what? That can, every player on the team needs to have their pilot light uh, amped up a little bit when they return against the Panthers. Or otherwise, they're going to get absolutely embarrassed.
3: Hmm. well apparently guys don't like brendan lemieux so you could trade for him hey another
2: guy exactly
3: i'm being sarcastic based on the kachuk chirp
2: yeah well hey who cares if they don't like him perfect right even if his own teammates don't like him if it makes everybody a little uncomfortable a little uncomfortable i think edmonton's too comfortable to be honest so
3: Hmm. interesting times
2: Quickly, Frank, speaking of comfortable, the, the reports of John Klingberg, you and I both watched Florida. We were talking about it before we started the pod today, how dominant they were. John Klingberg, a right shot defenseman added to that Florida lineup. Oh my, like I, they, they, I thought were good to start there. If they, j- if they get John Klingberg, man, they're going to be a real tough out. If I'm them, that's a perfect guy I would go after.
3: Yeah. I think they're going to be a tough out regardless. Um, they're just a really good team. They're, and they're cruising right now.'ve they've, they've got everything clicking. Um, they're physical, they're fast. They can play any style of game that you want. And I think that's one thing that they've learned is, you know, they they played against Tampa last year in the playoffs and they tried to run them right through the glass, right out of the building. And they the truth is they couldn't really keep up. No. And now they can, and they can still bring that same edge. They're going to be a fascinating team to watch at the deadline. I, I just think even if you took a guy like Klingberg, there's no reason that they can't resign it.
2: I know that's what's great about it.
3: <laughs> like they could, they could easily keep him. Like it involves moving Patrick Hornquist, which I think you could find a suitor for um, if you needed to, you could find someone like, you know, if push came to shove, you could find someone to take Sam Bennett like there's all like there's all sorts of options if you wanted to go down a different path uh to reshape your team a little bit in I don't want to season. trade
2: Sam Bennett man look at his playoffs no chance no, I'm you're right him. but I mean just taking
3: out um just taking out Hornquist alone at five three gives you a pretty big chunk yeah of what Klingberg would need to make
2: yeah no I just, that's the guy to watch man if uh, Dallas there there's talk but you know that there's talk they want and they're not out of it by any stretch. Dallas is right in the wild card race too. Well, that's, so that's what that's what, what I that think is
3: is actually really the hardest part for Dallas is that they're trying to accommodate what is clearly a big need for their team and their franchise which is to recoup assets instead of losing John Klingberg for nothing while also not totally neutering their team's chances to make the playoffs this year. And I think that's why, first off, he's really measured by, by his own nature, but Jim Neal responded the way that he did publicly, you know, about John Klingberg in the comments, he didn't pour gasoline on it at all. He just said, I understand where John Klingberg's at. I appreciate everything that he's brought. I I like his emotion. That's why he's good at, at the game and what makes him a really good player. But he said, "I, I need to do what's best for the team. And for the moment, the best, for the, the best thing for the team is to wait as long as you can until the deadline to see where your team's at. It's been a mercurial year for that group. They started off slow, one seven straight, and then it's kind of been, you know, middling since then. And they're not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. They're right in the mix uh for that second wild card spot.
2: Yeah. No, hey, they're a good team, man. The East, though, the East is crazy. Like the separation grows every week. <laughs>
3: But I think that's why the deadline is going to be interesting in the East because those eight teams, they know that they're in. It's not like, Hey, we need to make sure we're in before we go out buying. And the other eight teams below them are like, okay, well, we know that we're in sell mode. So there's this interesting sort of, Does the deadline start instead of March 21st? Does it start February 15th for those teams that know that they're selling? Usually there's this mushy middle where everyone's trying to figure out where they stand. And that's just not the case this year.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I wonder, you know, historically, if you can have a player a little bit longer, give them more time, more runway to feel comfortable in your new team. And so some of them might uh, make the move earlier than later. Uh, Let's make the move to uh, buy or sell as we bring in uh, Tyler Uremchuk. Yeah,
0: let's do a little buy or sell brought to you by our friends over at DoorDash. You can use the promo code Rundown DD gets you 15, or sorry, 25% off and no delivery fees on your first
2: order. Now, hey, before we get started, Ty. Yeah. Everybody who's listening, Ty's a huge Bills fan. Mm-hmm. Have you sobered up yet from Saturdays? Like that's literally <laughs> as close as you can come to a perfect game in football.
0: Yeah, it was pretty wild. I was just kind of sitting there and I was like, man, I was expecting the entire day. I was nervous the whole day. I was like, this is going to be a nail biter ender. Even when they were up at the half, I think every Bills fan was sitting there going, yeah, we're going to find a way to blow this one up, aren't we? And they didn't. So uh, yeah, excited for next week. Bring on potentially Kansas City. The game of the week, you guys would have missed an incredible ending because we're taping this right at the end of Dallas San Fran. It was insanity. You need to go watch it. Anyways, uh, enough of the football talk. Three buy or sell questions for you. It's going to be a quick one here. Number one, you buy in or sell in on the Oilers being a playoff team. Do you think they can come back and do it? Buy or sell Oilers as a playoff team, Frank?
3: Buy. I, I just think they can't possibly be this bad for this long. It's not going to continue. I don't even know that they need some, you know, crazy injection to shake it up. I, I don't, you know, clearly Ken Holland doesn't believe in firing the coach. Um, I don't know that there's vast options out there on the trade market. If you think that things are too comfortable there, to Jason's point, and if you've been listening along, this is the, the exact moment that you put it all on the players. We added pieces this summer. You guys figure it out. We're not bailing you out anymore. Mm. I think that's the answer.
2: Yeah, I'll still buy because the Pacific Division. There's not. It's. It's not like there's a bunch of Floridas and Carolinas and Tampas and everybody rolling around there. Uh, I think they'll. And you they got McDavid and Settle. They'll figure it out enough, but. Um, can they win a playoff round? Talk to me in a few months. Fair enough. Uh, sorting by points percentage, your four division
0: leaders right now in the NHL, Carolina, Florida, Colorado, and Vegas. We talked about the lack of a playoff race in the East. I don't think there'll be a single real division race. I think all four of them will hold on and win their divisions. You buy or sell in on Vegas, Colorado, Carolina, and Florida, all holding on and taking the division this year. Jason? <sighs>
2: good question um yeah it's it's hard to envision who's going to uh come back um the the only one um well florida obviously tampa and toronto but you know what i'm gonna say i'm gonna sell and i'm gonna say that uh carolina gets uh pushed by the rangers
3: hmm. the rangers it's funny have fallen off ever so slightly i'm gonna sell as well and i'm gonna say you know, there's, there are three teams in the Atlantic that are over 700. I, I do think it's the Atlantic. Like I think Florida is really, really good. I just don't know that they're quite as good as they've shown these last couple of weeks.
0: Uh, that's fair. And I probably should have ordered my questions better. Cause my third one was buying or selling on the Panthers winning the president's trophy. Frankie would obviously sell
3: well, it, it's real. Like they could certainly do it. Like the winner I, of that
0: division could very well win the president's trophy because there'll be a wagon.
3: I I think Colorado is going to win. Okay. The president's. Yeah. I think they're way better than they've shown. I think, mm-hmm. and I think they're just. I think they're going to finish somewhere near like seven seventy five by the time it's all said and done. I think Colorado wins the.
2: the yeah, I, I'm selling too because. The East teams are all going to have to play each other, and that's going to limit them. Yeah. Colorado's got an, an easier division top to bottom and definitely an easier conference top to bottom, and uh, that'll allow them to make up the ground and finish as the President's Trophy winner.
3: I have one buy or sell bonus question today. Okay. And it's for Tyler. All right. Tyler, are you buying or selling on Jason's glasses? Ooh. And if you're not, if you're listening in your car, please find this on YouTube just mm-hmm. to check out these neon green spectacles that match the candle that's on his table.
0: I'm going to buy on them as an idea, selling on them as everyday glasses. I think when you're like dressed up and you got something going, Jay Jay knows how to throw on a flashy shirt once in a while. I think it's like a dressed up thing. Jay can pull them off. Everyday glasses with a hoodie. Ah! Maybe I'm a little <laughs> cold on it.
3: <laughs> that that is the
2: totally you know right
3: answer I've ever heard. What is Jay? Is Jay signing your paychecks or what?
2: In, well, I mean, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all in, right. In okay. an all black suit, Frank killer. He, it's funny though. That, I, but I,
3: that's different. You're wearing a hoodie right now and it looks hey, insane. He's like, got to break them like, in Frank.
2: Yeah. But uh, I was wearing the, you know, what's funny actually. I have, I kind of, like I have five pairs of glasses, right? So I, I rotate and uh, these ones are obviously bolder than the other ones. And, uh, I was coaching my hockey team today and I, and I wore these ones to practice for the first, well, not practice to the game. And two of the kids came over to me and they're like, coach, why are you wearing glasses? And I'm like, well, I, I have glasses. I wear glasses all the time. <laughs> No, you don't. I'm like, well, I've just never worn these ones, but they never noticed them. Cause you know, I just had like black yeah. ones. They're kind of, they, I don't know if they blend in or not, but it was so funny. And then I, you know, kids are the best. They're eight. I said, do you like them? And Ethan's a very quiet kid. He's like, no, I don't like him. And then the other <laughs> kid who's very more outgoing is like, oh yeah, I love him. Green's my favorite color. So a lot of it depends on your personality. Hard sell. I, <laughs> I, I love, You also love- have a blue pair too. Like, 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 yeah. Like- yeah. They're very blue, bright blue the blue ones are fairly bright well i got uh, two blues actually a little like a like a, a calm blue and then a little bit of a brighter one yeah and then some black and a few so other like we ones We have
3: like a sponsor coming on today's eyewear brought to you by jason hey, why not you
2: should buddy for many years man actually i did have that uh, uh for for many years to have it so I'm, i think i'm uh, teeing that up again now with century vision care a little shout out to them all right Uh, To wrap this up, instead of a
0: points bet bonus question, I'm giving you guys like a points bet kind of trivia style question right now. They have five teams in the NHL at 10 to one or better odds to win the Stanley cup. So the top five on the Stanley cup odds board, who are the five? Frank Jay, whoever,
3: Colorado, Vegas, Tampa, Toronto and, and Florida.
2: Well, I, I know. See, I, I'm going to say Colorado, Florida, Carolina, Tampa, and Washington.
0: Frank nailed them, actually. All five. Ding, ding, ding. Colorado. I know in-
2: that the odds makers
3: don't like Col- Carolina for whatever reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, So you got Colorado at plus 550, Tampa at 750, Vegas, Toronto, and Florida all at eight to one. And then it goes Carolina at 14, Pittsburgh and Washington at 16, Minnesota and Boston at 18 to one. Everyone else in the league is 20 to one or less. So there you go. There's your update and there's your buyer buy and sell. for. What are your orders at now? 75. Uh, They're actually down at 30 to one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. There we go. There's buy or sell guys. All right. Love it. Hey, we got a very good guest. Uh, We we taped it earlier. Glenn Healy, longtime NHL or Stanley Cup winner with the New York Rangers. Frank, I'm looking forward to this because he's pretty funny, dude.
3: Yes, he is. Uh, Let's jump right in. Let's play the bagpipes. Let's give him an intro. Our next guest had a 15-year National Hockey League career. His name is engraved on the Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers in 1994. He played for the Los Angeles Kings, New York Islanders, the Rangers, as well as the Toronto Maple Leafs. He is now the executive director and president of the NHL Alumni Association. The DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome Glenn Healy. Heels, how are you doing? Well, it
4: doesn't get much better than that introduction, so uh, show's over. Hey, thanks for having <laughs> guys. Great. Perfect. Uh, it's been Perfect. good to get on your show. Hopefully, I yeah. no, I'm, I'm doing well, very well, as well as we all can be doing, uh, considering the circumstances around the world, um, how to be okay when okay is not okay. Uh, we're championing it. We're doing okay.
3: Yeah, we're all hanging in there. I wanted to get you on, and, and we'll dive into what uh, – to what's going on at the Alumni Association these days? but wanted to start with a new partnership that you guys have announced at the Alumni Association. We've been in lockstep with Points bet Canada uh, for the last number of months here at Daily Face Off and the Nation Network. Tell us about your new partnership with the
4: with Points bet. Well, I think you know when when it came to uh, the the gambling world, to say that we talked to every single partner would be an understatement. We talked to every single partner. And a lot of them reached out to us about uh, a long-term partnership that would make sense for both parties. And what we found with Points bet and their group is we found it to be a, a partnership that had some regulatory uh, systems in place that we really enjoyed. We found it to be a partnership that was long term. And we found it to be something where when I look at what we are, uh, in some ways as an alumni, we're authentic. Uh, For a good chunk of our membership, we're Canadian, so I wanted some group to come on board, to be part of my team, to wear that sweater that was authentic, that was Canadian, and coast to coast to coast in this country could help with some of the campaigns, some of the philanthropic things that in every small town, there's a story and there's a player who played in that team sweater who went on to dream big and to make the National Hockey League. And we've driven through those small towns. You know, you go up to Halliburton, the home of, and whether it's Hodgson or it's Bernie Nickel, whoever it may be, uh, those stories, we want to get those stories told, create a philanthropic side to it, create a long-term partnership, and have vision. And when the dust settled, there was one partner that we felt most comfortable with, and Points Best was on the dance floor and on the chessboard, and we are happy to be partners with them.
3: Yeah. I'd love to hear that heels. Um, I wanted to ask you like, you know, there's been so many changes at the alumni association in terms of new things that you've been able to do and accomplish, uh, since you really took over and and expanded the executive board, you know, brought in some fresh new people and, and new faces, people that are up for the challenge. Um, you know, what are some of the initiatives that you're most proud of over the last couple of years since you've been at
4: the helm? Well, I think, uh, my job never changes regardless of how many new partners or or new p- people we have a position it doesn't change my my job's pretty simple as all of our staff how do we make tomorrow better than today so every day i wake up i uh, find a way to make tomorrow better for a lot of players their spouses their families their kids whoever it may be our mission statement is honor the past and so with that in mind each day what we try to do is say to every player that's ever played the game, I know a couple things. One thing I know for sure is you will retire. And maybe I hope Sidney Crosby does it tonight. That would be great to get him as an alumni. Although I don't think that's happening tonight. But we all retire, but we don't necessarily all find what we want to do from the day we retire at 27 or 30 and transition well. And it is my job to make sure that that transition is a smooth one. And that journey from 27 or 30, or for me, I retired at 40 to dead is an enjoyable one and a fruitful one and a purposeful one. And so that really is our role at the NHL alumni to make sure that when a player calls or a spouse calls, or it is a a kid that calls and says, I want dad back, something's not right, that I don't say I'm sorry that I've built up enough library services to make sure I have an answer for every player and their families that call. And, And I think that's The thing i'm most proud of that's where we're at i never have to pick up the phone up and say i'm sorry four years ago five years ago uh, i did a lot of sorry now i don't have to do that the library of services that the players and their families have is is extensive and uh, there's help and hope for every player that calls
2: glenn uh, you retired 20 years ago and uh, i'm guessing when you retired there I'm not sure if there was really anything for, for alumni to reach out for if you're having problems and, and not necessarily, you know, post concussion or anything, just, you know, struggling with adapting to, to the new life where all of a sudden now you're just a normal Joe. How different is it and, and how how much as, as you're a member of that alumni, just how much better is it for former players now than it was, you know, even 20 years ago, which really in the grand scope of thing isn't that long.
4: No, it's not. And, you know, when I look back at my story of retirement, it was uh, I still had a couple of years left with the Leafs. I signed a, a two year deal at the age of 40. So that tells you clearly they didn't do their research on me or their scouting report. Because, <laughs> hey, trust me, I was done at 34. But those objects in the rearview mirror that are closer than they appear, I just kept running from them. Like, you know, just keep playing. So it, it just happened to be a buy, the buyout day for the NHL. And Frank has covered many of those buyout days. So when a courier shows up on a Saturday on buyout day, you're not getting a gift from the team. You're getting a gift that says you're finished. And with NHL players, I only really know one that decided on their own that it was time. For most players, it's a pink slip. It's old age, father time. It's talent that catches up with you, speed. There's a whole host of issues, but we typically don't decide on our own. And then so at that point, for me, my transition was, OK, now what next? And I was fortunate enough it hit the airwaves and Hockey Night in Canada called. They asked me to take part in their broadcast. I told them that if I stink after the first two weeks, I'm quitting. So I gave it two weeks. I did stink. I watched the shows back, but I managed to think I was OK to just stick around for a little bit longer. So my transition wasn't as difficult. And and I would say this for everybody. I don't care if you play football in, if you're Steven Gerrard and you play for Liverpool, I don't care if you're Andy Murray playing tennis and you're the best in the world. There comes a point when that purpose, that structure, you, you lack that when the game ends for you as a football player, as a tennis player, hey, as a doctor, as someone who works in our uh, sport when I was doing broadcasting. It came to an end for me there too. So I died that broadcast life as well. And then what? Now what is your purpose? So yes, that, those are kind of the things that we put together because we've talked to the experts. And the experts that we talked to in the past were psychiatrists, people that had been through it, people that had taught resiliency training. I flipped it all over on its head and said, I know who the experts are, the players. They're the ones that go through it. They're the ones that are going to tell me what it's like to be in the trenches. And so tell me, and we put together a big group, a resource team, an alumni resource team, tell me what you think you would have needed not to run into trouble with drugs or heroin or addictions, or what you would have needed to be better and more purposeful than what you wanted. And it was the alumni that were the experts that told me, and that's what we built for the players and their families. And it does change. I retired 20 years ago. The way it was for me as a player is way different than it's going to be for Connor McDavid when he retires as a player. So I have to constantly adapt. And that adaption happens every day, but the mission and vision doesn't change. Make tomorrow better than today. And some problems seem so obtuse and the acute intervention so great. You wonder how you'll get to the finish line. Well, we'll get there one step at a time. And I think that's the way I've looked at it, and all our staff has. But we're well-suited with social workers, with medical concierges, with doctors on staff. Our chief medical officer is one of the leading neurosurgeons in the world, and so we put together a solid team. It's not me. I'm just one of the pieces on the chessboard, and I might even be one of the pawns. We'll save the king and the queens for bigger pieces. So we have a big team, and we work well together.
2: Glenn, there, obviously there's some organizations that seem to have a stronger individual team alumni, right? From, from city to city. Um, You're overall, you know, the entire alumni. Is, is that a, a step in the right direction to try to get stronger alumni for each individual organization? And can that then help you at the, at the, at the grander scale?
4: Yeah, we, you know, we get together with all the other sports a couple of times a year, football, basketball and baseball, exchange ideas exchange uh, things that they do with great success with things that they have done with great failure. And I'm not ashamed to say that if I can cheat and copy an idea that you want to give me, I'm going to steal all your ideas. If they're good, and I have, I've taken them from some of the other alumni. I've sat in rooms and the light has gone off in the cave. And I thought, I want to build that for our group. So we're constantly trying to get better. And if other alumni sports, and they all go through the same journey that we go through, it's typically a hard end, a hard crash, but I believe that every player in their family deserves a great finish. One of the, uh, the scenes I always show at the end of any presentation is a picture of Usain Bolt crossing the finish line. Uh, and Frank wouldn't know this because he didn't get to compete in the 100 yard dash or the 100 meter dash. He was he was long distance runner, uh, but here's Usain Bolt crossing the line, the 100 meter sprint whatever you want to call it, and there is not a runner anywhere near him. Caption is finish strong. And to me, I think that's what every NHL player deserves. They deserve to finish strong. They should be proud they made the NHL. They would would do and you would do whatever it took to be in their shoes. Uh, But the journey sometimes ends quick, and it is a long journey, a short career with a short window to make money and a long life to live after. And that finishing strong and that journey, I think, has to be a good one. And for a lot of guys, uh, you may never have to help them in any way. But boy, do they help me in a big way. And arguably, the, the one of the first guys I got in contact before I even took the job would be uh, Wayne Gretzky and say, baby Jesus, are you going to be in the manger come Christmas morning? Because if you're not, I'm out. I can't help this group. And so we have a strong group, a, a really strong uh, advisory board, a really strong executive board, uh, you know, it consists of guys like Mark Messier and Guy Carboneau and Chris Pronger and Paul Coffey and Adam Graves and Steiner from uh, Sweden, like it, it's a strong group. So uh, I take their advice and guys from them. And uh, we will all work together as a pretty solid team.
3: So Heels, what are the some of the obstacles that you face? I, I'd imagine part of it is just sort of encouraging people to ask for help, especially some of the older alumni that maybe you know they grew up in a generation where you know that wasn't typical to ask for. Um, and I'd imagine the other part of it is just some of the other things that are happening in the world, rising healthcare costs, opportunity and options for care. What are some things that are current obstacles or hurdles for you at the Alumni Association?
4: Well, I think the biggest thing that all athletes face, uh, let's start with That first day, the NHL train leaves the station. And in 16 years or 15 years, you're not on that train. And the NHL continues on. I mean, Frank, when I left broadcasting, when when you left uh, your team at TSN, the the train kept going. They left the station. And there was this sense of isolation. You know, phone stops ringing. You know, all of a sudden, I'm not kicking people out of Harbor 60. The table's there and saying, Mr. Big Shot's in and look out. I've got that table. That doesn't happen anymore. So you feel the sense of isolation. The other thing with NHL players or, you know, in in any walk of life, there's a real sense of structure. You know, when I look at my career in the NHL, you would have a 930 meeting, 1030, you're on the ice for your pregame skate, 12 o'clock bus, one o'clock meal, have a little nap, 530 PP meeting, six o'clock PK meeting, 6.20 warm-up, 7.03 anthem, 7.04 puck drop, rinse and repeat, do it again. Take that structure away. Isolated, no structure. Does that kind of feel like COVID? Right where you're wearing sweatpants four days in a row and going, I got to get some structure in my day here because this ain't right. Um, So that's what NHL players feel. And, you know, we have to find a way to take all those skills we had on the ice, the discipline, the sacrifice, the unselfishness, and transcend those off the ice, and provide ourselves with a sense of purpose. And if we can do that as a group, then for me, if I'm looking at a business and want to hire someone who's highly driven, unselfish, sacrifices in every way, can get what it's like to be on a team, I'm probably going to look at an NHL player, excuse me, phone's ringing, I'll just pretend someone, someone's not there, uh, and then really make a difference. And I think if I can do that, uh, and everybody can do that, then that journey in life becomes a real good one.
3: That was uh, an epic transition there. Uh, well done, like a true media pro. I mean, just wanted to ask you on a personal level, aside from the Alumni Association, I know you
4: love what you do, but do you miss the media part at all? What I miss the most is the COVID has given us this a real sense and loss of bagpiping. Where has my bagpiping career gone? You know, we, we used to have a good band, one of the top in Canada. And, uh, and that's been gone away. Uh, to answer your question, I'm not evading it. <clears throat> although I I was pretty good at evading it, but I'll, I'll go and say that when I was doing the broadcast side of things, and I recall the very first game that I did and it was a retirement ceremony in Edmonton, they seem to have one of those every week. When I retired, I put all those sweaters in the rafters by giving up as many goals as I did. But, uh, and it was the first game I'd ever done and I didn't have my headset on. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a, you know, pretty big game sweater retirement. And, uh, and so game's about to start headset still off and, you know, doing color and the play-by-play gentleman, I won't mention his name. God rest his soul out of Winnipeg. You can figure out who it is. He looks at me, pushes his mute button. And he goes, Hey, dummy. Put your headset on. Canada can't hear you without the headset. Oh, there we go. Put the headset on. And one of the, the first stoppages of whistle, uh, they put up the lines, if you remember that. Right? Yeah. All the lines came up. And within 14 tenths of a second, lines are gone. So I, I started reading the first two names and said, well, unless you were a speed reader, you um, That was a waste of time, but don't worry. The next whistle will waste more of your time because we're going to put up the other team's lines. Clearly I got a call from the executive director telling me you can't say that. Yes. So that's how the career started. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I had a great team with all the broadcast partners I worked with at hockey night in Canada, TSN and Rogers, and got to do a lot of Stanley cup finals, got to work with great guys like Craig Simpson, Jim Houston, you know, we had great people in the truck, like Mark Askin. Shirley Najak was a genius. He was great to work with John Shannon, started me on my career. So I work with some great people. And to be able to do that coast to coast to coast on a Saturday night uh, was a special time. But like all good things, even a hockey career, it comes to an end. And it did. And I moved on to uh, a different role, one that clearly is much, much different than a couple hours on a Saturday night. <laughs>
2: Now, Glenn, I want to talk about your career because obviously you were a big deal. You only played in major markets. Yeah, you just you know you weren't gonna you weren't going to any of those small ones. You're just L.A., New York, and and Toronto, and and that's it. So tell you talked about your first broadcast, and and obviously maybe a little nervous or what have you.
4: Um, Don Whitman, by the way, Don. Yeah. Whitman.
2: yeah. Oh, Don it, Whitman's a well, beauty, man. Dude, you should have done curling with him. He was a curling legend, calling the games. I loved it. What was what was Glenn Healy's welcome to the NHL moment?
4: Well, uh, I had gotten called up. Uh, There's a little bit of a suspension going on in LA, and I recall the very one of the very first games. It was against uh, the Edmonton Oilers, and um, you know, I really wanted to just ask them for autographs and see if I could get a couple of sticks out of the gig, right? Because uh, if I never played again, well, it again, would be great to get a Gretzky stick, wouldn't it? Even if we just got a Messier glove or something. But <clears throat> so as we're watching the game, and uh, the score is about, I think at the time seven to two. And I'm leaning over the boards and, you know, my jaw's almost on the ice. And and I'm in awe of these guys. You know, it's Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Teakin, and Messier, Gretzky, Curry, Coffee scores. Okay, tic-tac goal would be an understatement. And the trainer uh, was Pete Demers, a longtime trainer, taps him in the shoulder and he basically says, hey, you know you're probably going to play in this game because every game we play against L.A., both goalies get a chance to play uh, with Edmonton. so you might want to get your head in the game because, yes, it's great to get their autograph, but you might want to stop them as well if they get a chance and try to keep the score under 10. And sure enough, the third period came. 7-2, we were down, and uh, we had uh, already packed it in and started the jet. It was over. We knew it. And uh, that was a proud moment for me for my start because I kept it under 10. We lost 9-2. So it was a good start for me. Uh, but it was a real eye-opener as to what it was like to play in this league against the, the greatest players. This was not Western Michigan. This was not the Pickering Panthers. Uh, this was the real deal against the best in the world. So you went from uh,
2: L.A. To, to New York, to the Islanders, and you know you had a lot of success there. Of course, one of the, you know, the great playoff runs that year when you guys upset the two-time defending champion, Pittsburgh Penguins, still one of the greatest upsets in, in NHL playoff history, Glennon. And, and when I look at your numbers, clearly that's when you started to feel really comfortable as a goalie. Did it... Did you notice that? And how did that go about, like, at the time you went from L.A. to New York, did you know it was going to be that good of
4: a move for you? Well, you got to remember when, when I first went to L.A., we were wearing the gold sweaters with the gold helmets, the yellow pants. We were dancing around the league, beating everybody up. We had the toughest team in the planet, uh, but we weren't winning many games. Uh, and and I, I think at the time we had four sellouts and maybe we had three games that were televised. No one really cared. And then all of a sudden, this one guy came to our team. I'm trying to think of his name. Um, oh, Gretzky. Yeah, that was, that's who it was. Yeah. So he came to our team, changed the sweaters, changed everything. We had all the stars coming out to the games. You know, And, and if you think about it for a second, Wayne went from Grant Fuhr and all those Hall of Famers to me. Okay. What do you think that's like? That'd be like, you know, Paul McCartney getting up on stage with us. and eh, not quite the same as the Beatles. Okay. So uh, I I knew at that point their club was going to make a change in direction for a better goaltender. Kelly Rudy came in and clearly had a better pedigree and was a better goalie. That led to my exodus. So I went from being a starter in L.A., then trying to find our way with the Islanders because we were a young team rebuilding. We had the greatest coach in Al Arbor. He was like a father and a mentor to us, but very young and just all of us cutting our teeth. And that led to a really good young team. Ownership led to a whole host of changes on the aisle to the point. It was almost 20 some years before they actually got it figured out and made the second round. Oh my gosh, what a success that was make the second round. Uh, And so it took them a long time. Lucky enough went to the Rangers thinking, well, that's a step down. They hadn't made the playoffs that year and the first day on the ice with them, I couldn't believe the speed, the skill, the execution. And I thought, how they didn't make the playoffs is beyond me, but we could win the cup. And we did. And that was a great moment because it erased 54 years of misery, three generation of hockey fan not making uh, and lifting a 35-pound trophy over their head. And we erased it. And to this day, I don't have to buy a drink in New York. So the only bad part is I'm in Ajax, Ontario, instead of New York right now. So I still have to buy my drinks here, but uh, great times with the, with the Rangers, great ending that drought. And I hope to do the same in Toronto, uh, but quite couldn't get it across the finish line.
3: So, but I want to back you up for a second because if you look at your hockey db page you'll see that you kind of seamlessly went from the Islanders to the Rangers in the summer of 1993 but not actually that seamless what was going <laughs> on with the expansion draft like how did how did you get from the Islanders to the Rangers
4: so that summer uh, is there's a bit of a story to it uh, there were a bunch of us from the Islanders that decided we were going to go to Ireland and celebrate what was a really good year of knocking off the Pittsburgh Penguins and Mario Lemieux and the dynasty that was Pittsburgh at the time. Unfortunately, we, we handed a cup to Montreal. They probably had two parades, one when we beat Pittsburgh and the other when they won the cup. Uh, so we went to Ireland and we we're on the West coast, no telephone. And I had, I didn't have a cell phone back then. There was no cell, can you imagine? No cell phones. So I had no cell phone. So who's on this trip? Oh, you've got Pat Flatley, and you've got uh, Gord Dineen. You've got a, you got a whole bunch of players that if you want someone to get out and have fun with, well, everybody wanted to get out and have fun. So it, it was quite an adventure for us. And uh, so sure enough, I get picked up by Anaheim, the Mighty Ducks in the uh, expansion draft. And they're trying to call me to let me know that, yes, in fact, I've been picked up. I don't call them back. No call back. It's important you called me back. I picked you up in the expansion draft. I have no idea I'm, I've even picked, been picked up. Then the next day, uh, one player is allowed to be picked by Tampa Bay. And Phyllis Mazzito orchestrates a trade where he picks me up, gets a player from the Rangers, and trades me to New York. Likewise, the Rangers, trying to call Glenn Healy to let him know, you're now a New York Ranger. No call back. totally ignoring the team. Who cares where I'm going? Doesn't matter. I had no idea until... We were in the Brazen Head Pub, which is one of the oldest pubs in Ireland, if not the oldest. And here comes Pat Blatley with his big head. And I can see him coming across the bar. And I know he's got something to tell me. And at that point, he tells me, you're a member of the New York Rangers. And if you put it in perspective, the Rangers and the Islanders hate each other. There's never a trade amongst the two teams. Couldn't be a bigger rivalry other than Montreal, Toronto. And this happens. Your starting goalie ends up with the Rangers. Uh, We actually had to call Pat Blatley's mom just to make sure she had read the paper the right way. And then at that point, I decided to get on the phone and see what my new sweater would look like before they punted me out of the league and sent me to Wuhan, which would have been their minor league team at the time. So uh, that's how the whole dance went down. And uh, to this day, I I never talked to anyone from Anaheim, but I know my name's up on a plaque in the dressing room as one of the original Mighty Ducks. (laughs) even though they never got me a sweater or cup ring in 2006. So
3: yeah, I was going to say, it feels wrong that they didn't at least send you a sweater. Very wrong. I'm I'm filing your
4: grievance. (laughs) Yeah.
3: But so you end up in New York and as you said, it it couldn't have worked out better. I mean, also a pretty easy move I would imagine for you at the time, not having to go very far. Um, Just tell us about what, you know, however many years on 28 years on, it is the relationship that you maintain with the guys that you won the cup with.
4: Well, you know, it was a really different year in the sense that uh, that training camp, we went to London, England. That was the French's Mustard Cup Challenge. There's a whole bunch of names the NHL used. And it was at Wembley. Is that a real thing? Uh, yes. No, I like to go on podcasts and live. So just, I'm making it up now. Um, <laughs> the French's Mustard. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so we went and we played the Leafs. Now, you've got to remember, the Leafs went to the Final Four the year before. So, you know, they were a really good team. And so we had a three game series against the Leafs and we basically just brought our team. They, there was no extra guys, really, maybe one extra defenseman, one extra goalie, uh, but we were there just, this is your team. Let's go play these three games. And we absolutely demolished the Leafs. And I'm thinking, well, if they went to the final four, we didn't make the playoffs. We got a chance. <clears throat> and one of the memorable things about that three games was the uh, league forgot the trophy for the French's mustard cup challenge, whatever you want to call it in the hotel. Didn't have a trophy to give to us after we had won that series. So they went to the flea market, in Wembley and brought this crappy bronze tin claret jug <laughs> and then presented it to Mark Messier at center ice. And Mark kind of got the trophy and went really? Okay. Basically left it in the locker room and Neil Smith, ended up taking that trophy back, and for years in New York, had that in his office. Uh, That was the start of our journey. Mike Keenan, in his only caring and good moment of that year, uh, gave us the rest of that week off in England where we could go and have fun. And trust me, as a bunch of veterans, we did. And, uh, And then we started that journey of the season. The very first day of the season, we watched the Miracle Mets go down Broadway on tape, and it was their parade. They're, they're winning the World Series. And we said, if we stick together in eight months, that will be us on Broadway. And right before game seven against the Vancouver Canucks, we went into a room. There's no big speeches. We didn't have Rocky come in and give a speech. There, were no Newt Rockney didn't come in either. It was just watch that tape, and boys, you're 60 minutes away. And we fulfilled a dream that most New Yorkers had never seen and a special moment, special team. And it all came together, incredible leadership. The team could have had nine, 10 captains. it was filled with Stanley cup champions. It might've been the Oilers from 10 years before, but we didn't care. We took them all in with open arms and uh, pretty much uh, from start to finish, we were the president's trophy winners and we were a team that uh, was, was destined to win. The only thing stopping us would have been ourselves Glenn, I love how you
2: bring up uh, Mike Keenan because there's always lots of stories about uh, Iron Mike and uh, you know disagreements with players, and you obviously had a pretty strong leadership group for the Rangers, right uh, you know Messier and Brian Leach, and you go down the list of Kevin Lowe and lots of other guys who had won. How was the dynamic between Keenan and your group that year and then maybe most importantly in the postseason
4: well I, I think there were times where it was very contentious <clears throat> and uh, Mike had a way of, of taking you to the limit, whatever your limit was, you would dictate that. And as players, we were always taught, listen to your parents, listen to your coach. Like, there's never a limit, right? Yes, sir. Two bags full, sir. Yes, more, sir. Right. And so for some players uh, the limit was established and the line in the sand really quick. And there were other players that the, there was no line established, and Mike would push as far as he, he could. And there, it could be at times very disruptive, and it angered players. There were a few mutinies, no question. Uh, but the leadership group that you mentioned, the Kevin Lowe's, the Mark Messier's, it, it was a, a plethora of guys that had won before, and Mike hadn't. And so he best use what God gave him, which is two ears to listen and one mouth to talk use the years more and follow along because you're just going to get in the way. We know how to win because guys had won 25, 30 Stanley cups. They they were multiple cup winners. Uh, They knew the way follow along, but the year was not without challenges. No question for, for me personally, for everybody on the team uh, it has led to some great books. There's some great books that you could read. um, And when you read them, you wonder how that story got out. But it is true. How did it get out? But it should be read. But, you know, he he pushed some guys to the point where Mike Richter had the best year he ever had. Ryan Leach had the best year he ever had. Mark Messier, who we thought, gosh, can he bring a championship here? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And he did it without Wayne. He did it twice without Wayne, which, you know, you always think your best player, which was Wayne. Mark did it twice. He did it 90 and he did it with us. So uh, a complete group, um, and really, when it comes to coaches, uh, you know, Mike was, he was respected, and we look at him today and laugh at those stories, but living in the moment when Kovalev had a nine and a half or an 11 minute shift, or, you know, he's kicking players in the back, I mean, gosh, we thank goodness we didn't have an HR department, that's all yes. I got the Kovalev shift is the one story I've always wanted to have someone who
2: was there tell for, for maybe our listeners who don't know. Because wasn't Mike, because he took too long of to a shift and then Mike refused to let him come off. Is that correct? Or how did it play out?
4: Well, Kobe was a rare breed in a sense. One of the most skilled guys I ever played with. I mean, yeah. this guy was absolutely talented beyond belief. <laughs> he hadn't put it together as a North American player yet. I remember the first game that I played with him, He was the right wing in the left corner in our end. So really out of position, right? I mean, kind of should be way over there. And he took a puck facing the boards and with a backhand pass over my head, over the net to the right winger, tape to tape. And I thought, okay, this guy's got talent. He's really good. But that talent sometimes gets in the way when you're coaching a team. So he would overstay shifts. And he would try to do maybe a little too much with the puck. It would work sometimes, it wouldn't work other times, and that's where the coach steps in. So the shift length was getting along, and Mike wanted to make a point. So as he would come to the bench for a change, no, no, you stay right there, he stays on the ice. Okay, next shift, stay right there, back on the ice. Now, the last shift of that journey, whatever it was, 11 minutes, 10 minutes, Kovalev scored. (laughs) So, so much for that lesson right? Oh. The that long shift, he scores. So off he comes. And the ironic thing was after the game, as we were lamenting on that form of discipline and what did Alex think of that long shift and was he upset by it? He actually in his mind in that moment at that time thought he was being rewarded for playing really good. <laughs> well, the message that <laughs> Mike had it clearly missed. Every, like the guy that was message was being sent to didn't get a, a stamp on the envelope. And so from the scoring at the end of the shift to wow, I'm being rewarded for this great <laughs> play of mine. Um, and when we had our 25th anniversary, um, they had the media ask questions, Frank, you may have been there. And um, uh, they had the coaches up on the dais and Yes. Question from the back, Alex, go ahead with the question. And it was actually Kovalev uh, feigning to be a reporter and in his Russian accent, Mike, what happened with that 11 minute shift? (laughs) Why do you leave Kovalev on? So it was quite funny, the banter back and forth, but these are the moments that you can have some levity with at the time they were real at the time they were full of emotion. Uh, But now we can look back and and laugh at them. And uh, Alex you know, when you look at the way he played in the finals for us, uh, when you look at some of the things that uh, he did in that playoff run, uh, he was a big part of us winning a Stanley Cup. Uh, I, he might have had a point a game in the Stanley Cup final, but uh, he was the right guy to play with the right players on the right line and to come over and learn. And we had, I'm, I'm going to say we had five Russians on the team. Sergey Nemchimov was the leader of that group and like in Russia where they always have one guy with the white, you know, the fur hat and everyone else wears a different color. Sarge was the guy with the white fur hat. Any message you got to Nechimov spread to the Russians. And they were such a big part of our team that when we had our Stanley cup party, uh, we had it in Brighton beach and we had it at the Russian restaurant that they all like to frequent. So oh, nice. we took our North American Stanley cup party to Russia and, uh, I don't think I've drank vodka ever since. So it's a good, a good memory and a bad memory all in one night.
2: I love it. Well, Sergei Zuboff, he might get overlooked. He led your team in scoring in the regulars. Him and Brian Leach might be the greatest offensive defenseman tandem arguably ever for a team. Like Sergei Zuboff to me might be one of the more underrated players of all time. I don't think I've ever seen a guy walk the blue line better than him on a power play, Glenn. how is it? What was your thoughts as a, goal, a goalie of Zuboff?
4: Well, you had Brian Leach uh, on the one side and Zuboff on the other. Uh, and they both played on their on-wings, not this off-wing stuff for one-timers. So it would just spread the box right out for these guys to make laser beam passes through the box. Uh, not many people know that Zuboff led our team in scoring. But even further than that, uh, we had an exhibition game at the at the start of the year. And it was a long way to go from where we lived into downtown Manhattan. And Zuby decided that he wasn't going to go to one of the exhibition games that he wasn't playing in; that it was maybe a little too inconvenient and didn't want to travel the roadways. So he didn't go. The next morning Keenan had his sticks all wrapped up and his bag done up in the middle of the locker room. And Zuby was one of those guys who would kind of walk in always late and a little bit aloof, you know, with his, with his head up a little bit. And as he got to the middle of the room, he kind of looked down and was like, that's my hooky bag. What's going on here? So they sent him to the minors. So he spent the first bunch of games of that season in the minors. And then it clearly wasn't the right recipe. They knew it. And so as a result, uh, he got called up and was back on the roster. And that year, we basically played four defensemen. So we we had Kevin Lowe uh, play with Jeff Bukaboom. Uh, two, again, great mix. Skill with LeBron. And then we had, uh, you had Zuboff and you had Brian, or Sir Brian Leach and Buka Boom, and then you had Zuboff and Kevin Lowe. So we had four defensemen that played almost all of the game. And then you get five or six shifts out of your Doug Blitzers and your Jay Wells and, and, and that group. And so they sat beside me most of the games and I kept them company. And then the other four just went to play.
3: Love that. Um, Heels, I want to play, we'll play a little rapid fire with you. One last one. You, you're just sort of lamented about um, not being able to bagpipe as much. Can you tell everyone about your love for bagpiping, where it came from and and how often you get to do it?
4: Well, Scottish parents, so you've got to play an instrument and uh, bagpipes just happen to be it. Um, certainly wasn't very proud of it when, you know, you're in college and <laughs> not really the coolest instrument. But if I look at uh, what that journey's led me—I got a chance to play with Paul McCartney on a number of occasions, with Mull of Kintyre, uh, so I could say I'm the fifth Beatle. Got a chance to uh, go to Vimy Ridge on a couple of occasions, the 93 commemoration of the memorial uh, has led me to the D-Day beaches, Carnegie Hall in New York City. Uh, so it's taken me all around the world. Thoroughly loved it, and um, as everybody loves the joke, I'm sick of the joke. He's better on the pipes than between the pipes. Okay, I said it. There we go. It's Nick Capriosa's favorite. It's his only joke. <laughs> I stole it off you, Nick.
3: <laughs> but so your COVID has prevented you from playing? Is that is that the deal? Well, you
4: can't really get together with a band of 40. I don't know if you they, they have these numbers issues up here. So uh you you gotta put a pause on everything. St. Paddy's days haven't really happened in the past couple of years. Those are always great crack. Those are always fun, and uh, and so we've had to be patient, and we will come back. This instrument's been around since the, I think, uh, <laughs> the early eight eight hundreds. So I don't think it's going anywhere. So we'll be back, bigger, stronger than ever. But uh, the the limit requirements and the gathering requirements, and and then the fact that my you know now that we're stuck in the house, my family's not happy with the noise. Uh, I've had to put it down for a little bit.
2: All right, Heels, we always like to end with uh with rapid fire. The only rule is you have to answer the questions. All right. So uh here we go. Um is there a Glen Healy sign outside of Ajax or Pickering? And if not, will there be?
4: No, uh, but there is a nuclear reactor sign for the Pickering nuclear reactor. So we're famous for that and not me. So oh, okay. No, so there's no. There,
2: there's no petitions for a Glen Healy outside of Ajax or Pickering, no. No. no it's none. Zero. Blasphemous, yeah. blasphemous. Um, Painful. You, you mentioned you haven't drank vodka since you won the uh, Stanley Cup. I'm not sure I believe that. But uh, when you are sitting back in, in Ajax relaxing, uh, what is your
4: cocktail of choice? Uh, I'm going to say a nice uh, glass of Carlsberg. Ooh, classy. Okay. Yep. And um, they're their beautiful aerated cup that has the bubbles come up because they've created something on the bottom. I've heard all about it every time I order one, they tell me about it. So um, if I keep ordering a lot of them, I won't even remember. They told me that. And then the next time I'll remember it for the next time and the next time. So Carlsberg, drink of choice.
2: Awesome. Uh, most of your career you spent in the two biggest cities in the U.S., New York and L.A. Which is which one had the best nightclub scene for Glenn Healy?
4: Uh, I would say the, the nightclub scene in New York. And one reason, one reason only, in L.A., I was driving a black Ford Escort with no air conditioning two-door. Not exactly a magnet for anything (laughs) other than... Save some for the rest of us, heels. Yeah, they're not even... People aren't in L.A. and Compton, they weren't even going to steal that vehicle. I (laughs) get it running, wouldn't matter. So probably New York, yes. Uh, Glenn, when you came up, you know, goalie coaches weren't a thing. So which head coach did you
2: have who knew the least about goaltending?
4: Rogie Vashon. <laughs> Come, on. <laughs> Come on. I can recall sitting with Rogie asking him a question about, you know, the pucks behind the net. They've got three guys here and one guy here. This guy's on his one timer and this guy's on his strong side. How do you play that? Where's your weight? What foot's it on? And he just looked at me and went, just stop the puck. <laughs> and he was a goalie. I love. So oh, conversely, Hall of Famer.
2: Did you um? Did you have a coach who really related to goaltenders?
4: Oh, Mike Keenan. Oh, for sure. He <laughs> let us all play every night. It's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes you would play multiple times in a night. <laughs> if I getting another chance. Wow. Thank you, Mike. Like, what was his, like, what did he, cause man, he used to just pull goalies all the time. What did he,
2: did he say anything or was it just a, ah, here comes seals. Now Richter's going in. Like, did he ever say anything to explain why he was yo-yoing the goalies?
4: No, uh, but I can tell you on a number of occasions, I told them what I thought. i changing goalies. <laughs> <slowly. laughs> and one particular occasion was in the playoffs uh, with the New York Islanders. And uh, no, it's the very end of the year uh, against the New York Islanders. And uh, just so happens, probably I should have been a broadcaster, Frank, at that time. I would have known where the cameras were. Uh, (laughs) The camera was directly on me. And uh, I really didn't ask him what color his tie was or who made his suit. Uh, Pretty much, you could read my lips. And uh, there were body parts. There was, uh, it it was, I didn't have kids back then. Thank goodness. It would have been shameful.
2: Winning a Stanley Cup is a big deal. But you talked about that Islander upset. Of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Was the party close when you celebrated that series compared to the Stanley Cup?
4: Not even close. In fact, when the year ended, uh, and we had a new ownership group there. We all got together as a team for the year-end party. And the captain was Pat Flatley. And he went over to the ownership group and on a napkin wrote down, I was a free agent, and wrote down my contract demands. And the owner crumpled it up put it in a ball and threw it at me. At that moment, I knew two things. The party was over that night and the party was over with me, with the Islanders. So thank you Patrick for being such a great agent and having me get a chance to win a Stanley cup, to have a way better party.
2: Oh, that is fantastic. Glenn. Um, a lot of your teammates have said you are a really witty, funny guy. So who was the wittiest, funniest teammate you played with?
4: Uh, very, there's so many. Uh, I would say Mark Bergevin, uh, who is the now he's working with Los Angeles out of yeah, you know, out of Montreal. Uh, he had a sense of humor that uh, was pretty spectacular. Uh, but everyone had a little bit. Uh, there were the dry sense of humor. There was the sense of humor that you know the big laugh when they told a joke and only they laughed, the big laugh. So everyone had a little bit of a different flair. And then there was the players that thought they were really funny and they really weren't like who I played with in Toronto wore a helmet, the size of the great kazoo could beat me up if he was here next to me and probably beat anybody up. So you can kind of fill in the blanks as to who that may be. But I got chased around the locker room a lot by him because that quick wit. Oh, that was really good for me as I was getting my head banged off a 20 gallon Gatorade drum. (laughs) Thank you, Ty. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Were you a chirper on the bench or when you played? All the time, nonstop, did not stop. And in fact, um, very few times I I was genuine, but it was one particular game in New Jersey when, you know, the the bench was wide open. You could actually talk to the players as a backup bully. I was talking to one of the players. who was a tough guy, just wishing him Merry Christmas and hope your family's doing well and enjoy the holidays. And Ty Domi thought that I was being chirped by that player, stepped on the ice and knocked him out. And the game ended. And I said, Ty, we were only wishing each other Merry Christmas. And Ty was a little bit taken back and said, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't be talking to the bench anyways. So (laughs) 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 there we go. Oh, Uh, awesome. I I had a bit of a, of a, a tongue on the ice because when you can't back it up physically, you try to find an arsenal that works and work for me.
2: Hey, nothing wrong with that, man. Uh, yeah, you, were, you were verbally uh, tough, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, Glenn, all right. uh, great having you on the pod. We really appreciate it and continued success.
4: All right. Have a good one, gentlemen. All the best. And uh, thanks for your wonderful time today. And good thanks, to see you again, Frank. Uh, yeah. Other than an arena, but good to see you nonetheless. You too, pal.
2: Glenn Healy, man. That guy's a beauty. He's one of the best storytellers, Frank, that I've ever so met good. over the years.
3: He's just, there's no pause. Like his, his, he's so sharp. Everything's on recall. He's probably told the stories a million times, but he makes you, he's got the same energy, makes it feel like he's telling it again for the first time.
2: Yeah, so uh, love having them on, and you know what? Uh, I'm curious to see the partnership and and, and how that's going to expand the the play the alumni association. Of course, I, I think has gotten a lot stronger in, in the last few years. Uh, talk to players how the, you know there's a lot more help for uh, for ex players than there ever has been before, which is super important. And you know, they're not afraid to ask for girls. help now. They've created yes. this
3: environment where. know go to their website the alumni association you can type in a contact form and some of it's done anonymously some of it's done through family members um they're way more part of it is communication just be in touch with everyone on a regular basis that's part of it and there are obstacles. Uh, I know they've worked really, really hard to try and find affordable health care options and plans. And they've got things set up for alumni members where, you know, once or twice a year, they have, you know, a doctor that's set up uh, somewhere and they can bring everyone in and, and get a free physical, a free checkup, a free whatever it is that you need help with. They've got uh, some kind of avenue and connection and really smart by Glenn and and the rest of the group to surround yourself with the top players. Like if you, you know, as he said, if I don't have the support of Wayne Gretzky, they've got Mario Lemieux, all the big players of the past eras that have been on board, that really goes a long way in terms of trying to reach out to others
2: uh, that need help. For sure. It's awesome. Well, uh, Frank's gonna be an interesting week. Uh lots going on in the NHL. We'll talk to you on Friday. Have a good one.
1: Thanks for listening to the DFO rundown with Sarah Voli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.